Some viewers may find the following video disturbing. Viewer discretion is advised. Two WTF Global Internet Radio Network proudly presents What's the Buzz? America's Best Podcast. I'm Mad Dog Scipio, joined each and every week by the mouth of the South herself, Amelia the Pitbull Chapman. And right now it's four o'clock in Los Angeles, six o'clock in Chicago, and seven p.m. here in New York City. We have one hell of a show for you tonight. We're going to go back, way back in time, to uh, a more innocent time. We thought. But, oh, what lurked behind the corner. Tonight, the case of Philadelphia's boy in the box, America's unknown child. And to walk us through that muck admire, our Misty Gillis. She is a forensic genealogist with Identifinders. They help solve the boy in the box case for the Philadelphia, for and with the Philadelphia Police Department. And joining us as well is Colleen Fitzpatrick. She is the founder of Identifiers, and she is a forensic scientist. Ladies, welcome to the show. Thank you. Nice to have um, you here. This yes. is the case welcome. that uh, we've been wanting to do this a long time. This is actually uh, a case that really tugged at Pitbull's heart for a long time. So, Amelia, I'm going to let you jump in over here. Tell everybody why this case was so important to you. Well, I've always been a fan of unsolved mystery cases because this is something that I've wanted to do as a teenager. You know, like they come to your school, what, what would you like to do as a career? And I thought, well, this would be something interesting to do, maybe forensics, you know, kind of get to the bottom of it, maybe a little piece of paper or, you know, what's in the bush, you know, kind of get that. And then when I saw this case and I'm like, oh, my gosh, this poor, innocent little boy, not, you know, not identified, not known, you know, I think he deserved justice. And I thought, well, if we did a case like this, maybe we could help the families or whoever this was get a name out there, find out who he was, who what, what happened. And, you know, we had been putting it off, putting it off. And the paper just kept at my desk, at my desk. And I said, we have to do this. We have to do this. And finally, uh, we're here after we finally found out who he was. Uh, Misty, let me go to you on this one, because your name has been touted mm -hmm. a lot. Yes. With regard to this case, um, I want to be clear and I want to give absolute credit to the people who actually who did the actual solving here. Um, the police department in Philadelphia, and I will read something. I will read a statement here. The police department in Philadelphia made virtually no mention of identifinders. Now, was that by purposeful choice? Or did does what you do generally, as a rule, remain in the background anyway? 
I think what we do does remain in the background to a certain extent because a lot of it is not understood by the general public. I think, Colleen, you can agree with me on that, that we tend to kind of fly underneath the radar in a sense with the work that we do. Yeah, I'm sure. I mean, I, I agree that, you know, it's really up to the agency what they want to release and what they don't. In some cases, uh, the police department doesn't feel comfortable mentioning forensic genealogy because especially in violent crimes, you know, the jury that they eventually select, if it's a jury case, jury might have some reservations, you know, and be uncomfortable. So yeah. they, and it's only an investigative lead. You know, it, it leads to the answer, but it's yeah. a lead. So, you know, you really sometimes really don't have to say anything. It's interesting that something you said just prompted um, an aha moment. Uh, it's interesting. They did not mention identifiers, but they did. I swear I can't make mm -hmm. this up. They did mention a psychic that was working with them. Yeah. And I was... can't even I no. can't even make that up. No, it's remarkable. Let me read something to you because we're going to talk about this. Despite the publicity and sporadic interest throughout the years, the boy's identity remained unknown for a half a century. On November 30th, 2022, the Philadelphia Police Department announced that detectives, detectives had determined the boy's identity using DNA and genealogical databases. A quote, unquote. On December 8th, 2022, more than 65 years after his body was found, the boy was publicly identified as Joseph Augustus Zarelli during a press conference held by Philadelphia Police Department. So the boy was identified. The exact circumstances leading to his death were uncertain until the case. Uh, I'm sorry, uncertain. And yet the case remains an open homicide investigation. Let's talk about that. There's a bit more, but I want to talk about that. Um, almost exclusively here, the Philadelphia Police Department is taking a basically full credit. That's what I was going to say. Full and credit. Yeah, mm -hmm. and they're taking credit, but they're mentioning genealogical databases. Uh, let's get into the nuts and bolts of what we're talking about here, because I will be honest with both of you. that I know a lot about a lot of stuff, but this is one area that is total Greek to me. I know absolutely nothing about what you guys do, so I'm relying completely and wholly upon your information. So smarten me up, as we used to say in the wrestling business. Smarten me up to what's going on here. So, uh, Colleen, if you want to, you're the, the kind of the boss here, so I'm taking my cue from you, kid. Well, I was going to say the overall view, and then Misty can tell you a little bit more about the, you know, the details of how, what we did fit in. Because a lot of people, you know, say, oh, I can't, I'm, oh, it's so complicated, but it really isn't. And what I tell people is that, oh, well, you must know that you're basic. You take an ancestry test, let's say, and then you get your results back and they give you a list of what we call DNA cousins or matches. And that are people in the database that share a certain amount of DNA with you. And you start yeah. with that list and you might not know who these people are. Let's say you're adopted. You don't know anything. You don't know who these people are. So what we do is basically it, 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 the 30 second explanation that works is that um, if all those people are related to Mr. X, they have to be related to each other. 
And so what we do first is take mix, Mr. X or the boy in the box out of the picture, except to know he's Caucasian, except to know maybe he's half German or something. And then we look at the rest of the DNA cousins and we it's sort of like a Sudoku puzzle where everybody has to be consistently related to everybody else. And mm -hmm. once you get, we have tools that tell us how to do that. And then once we have that picture, there's only one place that's missing and that's the person we're looking for. So we bring him and we put right. him back in. That's like the easy way to understand what we do. Yeah. Misty, you want to jump in here? Yeah. So in Joseph's case specifically, um, one of the tools that we use is an admixture tool that tells us the ethnic origins of the sample that we're working on. Okay. And we were quickly able to determine that he was half Irish stock, meaning not necessarily from Ireland, but his family went back to the UK and half Italian. And so that was a huge clue for me for working on his family trees. So I was able to build out the matches that were consistent to the Irish side and were consistent to the Italian side and then see kind of where they intersect with each other. In his case specifically, his mother came from the Irish stock and she had what we call ex-DNA matches. And when a man is born, so women are born with two X chromosomes and men are born with one X and one Y. And the only place he can get that X chromosome from is his mother. So when I knew that the Irish stock was on the X chromosome matches, I knew that was his mother. And his father, I was able to deduce, was from the Italian matches. Incredible. And it, it really is, it sounds quite convoluted on the surface. But if you follow... It, it, it kind of like if you connect the dots, if you follow the yeah. dots, it's really simple. As Colleen said, it was it was I'll be honest with you. Uh, and quite frankly, Misty, it was a lot easier for me to follow that uh, the way you put it. Yes, it, it it's really not what they we used to say. It's not rocket science, you know, no. <laughs> it's really not. Um, I'm sure it's far deeper than I'm making it, but, but it's not so convoluted that I don't, mm -hmm. that I don't understand it now. Um, uh, let's read a little bit on I want to talk a little bit about this. Um, this case is more than 65 years old, now 66 years old. Joseph Augustus Sorelli, born January 13, 1953, um, Passed away for all intents and purposes. Discovered February 25, 1957. Four years old. Previously known as the boy in the box or America's unknown child. Uh, was found nude, extremely beaten. His body was uh, on the, uh, the embankment of Susquehanna Road in Philadelphia. The Fox Chase section of Philadelphia. In fact, I'm from Philadelphia, so I know this area very well. Uh, it is not reminiscent in any way, shape, or form today of what it looked like back in 1957. I can assure you of that. Susquehanna Road is a very, very busy traveled uh, highway for all intents and purposes. Um, and you'd be hard-pressed to find a tree in the area. Uh, it's almost all completely built up. So given the fact, Colleen and uh, Misty, that this happened, uh, the discovery happened in the winter, the colder months. Did that help or hinder the preservation of the DNA compound uh, or the physical uh, remains of this boy? 
did that help preserve it or did it help deteriorate it? No, I think it was irrelevant because when you consider the boy was buried 66, five years ago, 66 years ago, that the action over 66 years of the weather, the humidity, the temperature, you know, the the soil composition, that was far more in effect than, you know, if it was cold when he died. You know, the, mm. it was terrible okay. DNA. So it took a lot of effort to massage that into a way that Misty could use it. So the okay. overwhelming part was it was just old. Never really preserved thinking DNA would be invented like 30 years later, you know. Right, sure. That's a very good point. Um, Misty, in the grand scheme of things, does weather play a factor in, in DNA um, preservation or decomposition? Oh, absolutely. Um, you know, in more humid and hot climates, I think Colleen would agree that things deteriorate a lot faster and degrade a lot faster, especially in moist climates. Like if a body is kept underwater, if it was pulled from the river after X amount of years of being stuck in water, that plays a role on the degradation amount of the DNA. Interesting. Uh, Amelia. Uh, yes. That's, uh, you, this is this is your puppy. You're up. No. <laughs> yes, I was uh, going to ask a question as far as like the scars that were found, as far, surgical scars around the ankle, maybe the groin or the chin. Would that have been something that they were trying to hide in case his body would have been found sooner as far as marks, maybe? Uh, like we, we can't marks? really say. No, we really don't have that information. You know, we identified him and we know enough about the backstory, you know, his mother, father and stuff. But, you know, we don't have that amount of detail and any, any uh, efforts to go to get hospital records, you have to know who he is right. to get the hospital records. Yeah. Oh, You're looking absolutely. at 16-year-old hospital records. So, mm -hmm. you know, that was not a, a way that could be followed. It, it really didn't make a difference. Right, I, Colleen, do you know yeah. if any photographs of the mother or father were ever found? Uh, not to my knowledge. What about that, Misty? I don't think anybody had photographs. Because I'm going to show of. you photographs tonight of his mother and father. There's photographs from oh. obituaries mm -hmm. online and from the yearbook photo of his mother, but there's okay. none that are um, like quote unquote family photos or oh, anything. I like yeah, I, I'm going to show you what uh, police verified as uh, photographs of uh, Joseph Zarelli's parents. Go ahead, Amelia. Okay, I didn't see yeah. those. Uh, yes, and then uh, as far as uh, forensic genealogy back then, if it would have been around a, like it is now, I think would you have uh, maybe have found someone, the murderer, perhaps I would have said sooner than maybe no, not. No, I don't. It's hard to I say because he so, had. Yeah, it's hard to say. Yeah, yeah. You know, if it's if if he, you know, for somebody who's raped, you may have. I can tell you stories about. DNA very lucky being found, you know, after, but in this case, you know, the child, child abuse or whatever happened, you know, he died naturally after all. There's no real DNA of anybody there, to my knowledge. Good, Misty. Uh, Go ahead, maybe Rick. on the box, not right, anymore. Because yeah. of the de deterioration of the box, probably there would have been some DNA still left on there if the and there was yeah, a and also too, I believe. Yes. Yeah, and the mixtures usually with items like that, more than one person has handled them. You know, the somebody who opened the box and somebody put him in the box and somebody who carried the box, and so that kind of 
you know, even a hat, you know, maybe the hat band, but if two people wore the hat, you're out of luck. Go ahead, Misty. I think I, I agree with that statement that, um, I mean, back then the problem is like the only DNA they would have been able to possibly get is like we said, touch DNA off the box, which would have been a commingling of people handling it. And then um, the hat that was found at the scene, if technology was what it is now, so now we can get DNA from rootless hair, which means, you know, before they used to think that we have to pull the root out to get the DNA on it. Yeah. But now we can use an actual hair shaft that doesn't have a root on it to actually get a SNP profile for DNA um, to use for a genealogy investigation. So if, say, there were hairs in that hat, we might be able to go that route. But after so many years, that's not going to be a viable option. Let's talk about the, the, the physical component of this. Um, you're dealing in many cases with degraded material, sometimes barely enough DNA to work with. Um, sometimes a single strand of hair can make the difference in a case like this. Have you ever been up against the wall with evidentiary value uh, in other, in other oh, Colleen's words. got stories out for days on that. <laughs> yeah. Oh, again, Woods, yes. Yeah, go for it. What's your, what's it? You mean not enough evidence? Is that it? Yes, ma'am. Mm -hmm. Evidence isn't good enough or something like that? Or it's or decomposed or it's deteriorated or it's so old that I know that anything. they can pretty much extract DNA from I mean, they're, they're able to extract DNA from mummies, for crying out loud. But sometimes yeah, but it, the mummy, it all depends. Well, yeah. No, I mean, go ahead. I've seen the mummies to... are in caves in, in dry, dry weather, you know, in caves, cool, dry weather, or, you know, <laughs> yeah. in the sand. And, you know, this, the, like Misty said, the humidity isn't there. You know, exactly. DNA doesn't like water. So, and you know, plus the had... mummification process too, Colleen, was, was quite, you know, quite something to behold. Mm -hmm. You know, I know yeah, a little bit well, about Egyptology, and I, I can tell you that, um, you know, the mummification process, they took that shit serious. That was real serious to them. They did. But now did, when you're yeah. talking about a little boy being essentially dumped like garbage on the side of the road inside of a, what amounts to a bassinet box, you know, uh, and, and and of course, you know, in the midst of, of winter, cold weather, we know that because of crime scene photos, and, and, you know, everyone is wearing long, heavy uh, uh, coats and, and uh, the police are wearing uh, floor length leather, um, almost like military uniforms at the time. So. My question is, what was it about the evidence that you had that, that did it lend itself immediately to good evidentiary value, or did you have to really dig to find this DNA? Well, let's say this. Um, it was... Um... It was a real challenge because, you know, the DNA was severely degraded, which means it, shot, it falls apart in little pieces like confetti. Mm -hmm. And uh, for right. one thing, uh, now, you know, our conventional stuff that we use, you know, you send it to the lab. They have conventional type ways where they pull the DNA out. They have certain chemicals. Right. And that really 
we, you know, we didn't really get a lot of DNA using conventional stuff. And we even sent it to the International Commission on Missing Persons in The Hague to try. And they pretty much did not get enough. They got a little bit of bad DNA, let's put it that way. And we tried to get genealogy data. We call it, you know, processing, whatever you want to call it. Uh, so uh, it, it, we sent it to a lab that we just can't identify, but it was a specialty lab that worked with mummies, with ancient DNA. And they had methods of pulling, you know, miracle amounts of DNA from all kinds of things, including like cave, in caves, cave dirt, you know, oh, they were sure. in cave dirt. So um, when they got it, they were, they pulled out like the, in the old way, we got what's called an eighth of a nanogram. A nanogram is something we feel comfortable with, no matter what you think that is. It's right. a billionth of a gram, a little tiny amount. We can use that. And, and all the other labs were getting an eighth of a nanogram, an eighth of that, yeah. 0.121. One. So this specialty lab did four DNA extractions, and they got between one and a half and three nanograms. And so it was like a different way of pulling out all these little teeny pieces, you know. And then, sure. uh, of course, you have to knit it together to make sense out of it. Yeah. You just can't throw the confetti in the air and have it land perfectly. So they use advanced software to kind of knit it all back together, these little pieces. And that's what we were able to get. Once you have it all, the DNA all knit together and you pull the right markers out that you need. Yeah. And that took that whole thing from front to back took three years. Wow. Misty, what, um, what did you have that, uh, that made you to go to girl on this one? So I've always been interested in true crime and I've always followed true crime and cold cases and things like that. And so I was very well versed in the boy in the box. And so when Colleen was able to secure the case for us, um, we pretty much talked about it. And I said, you know, I, I know this case front and back. I've done my due diligence. I know the history of it. I've read books on it. I've read every blog post on it. I've read every article. And mm -hmm. she said, you know, I feel like you'd be the best fit to work on this case because you know the absolute history of the case. So when she was assigning what genealogist would get the case, she picked me. Interesting. Yeah. Let's take a really look early at in the story. Oh, I'm sorry, Colin. Go ahead. Continue. I said early in the story before all the catastrophes. So one of the things is Misty <laughs> yep. hung in there because it wasn't clear this would work, but it did. I want to I want to show everybody a kind of a case history of the boy in the box. Let's take a look at this. Sixty-five years after a little boy was found dead inside a cardboard box, police finally have an identity for him. Philadelphia authorities announced Joseph Augustus Zarelli was identified using DNA as well as genetic genealogy techniques. Joseph was just four when investigators say he was beaten to death. The most recent process to identify him started in 2019, when authorities exhumed his body and used the modern DNA analysis to try and find family members. They were able to track down his mother and father, who are now dead, as well as a few living siblings. Despite pleas for people to come forward with information when the boy was found in 1957, police eventually ran out of leads. Their only clues were the boy's naked body wrapped in a cheap blanket and put into a box that once held a bassinet. The boy appeared to be malnourished, and his body bore the signs of recent and past trauma. In his very short life, 
it was apparent that this child experienced horrors that no one, no one should ever be subjected to. When people think about the boy in the box, a profound sadness is felt, not just because a child was murdered, but because his entire identity and his rightful claim to own his existence was taken away. Dina, can you tell us more about how DNA advancements are helping solve cases like this? Yeah, this is a perfect example because of the number of years that has gone by. No amount of uh, investigative witness interviewing would have discovered this, but the DNA was able to identify him and perhaps it might lead them to if they find the killer or find out what happened. Perhaps there was somebody else's DNA that was also left on the body. That would be really hopeful because I think not only do they want to identify him, they really want to find out exactly what happened and how he died. And of course, this case is not solved as yet. So Terry, what's next for the investigation? Is finally finding out how he died, by whom? Is it is it easier to find out this than to find out his identity? Well, you know, now that they have his identity, I think it will make it a little bit easier to find out exactly what happened. We may not have DNA evidence of the person who killed him or the people who killed him, but we can now, with a name, trace back his life. And that's where that footwork, that investigation is going to come in. He is the son of two different people. Now, even though they have already died, we can go back and look at what kind of life this child had. And the evidence and the you know information that we have so far is that he had bruises, his body had been battered and beaten, not just at the time of his death, but apparently he had older bruises in his body. So I do think that the footwork is going to be done here. And if in fact the siblings or some other relatives are still around, they can be interviewed and perhaps they have information that can lead the authorities to some additional information. So that identity is critical. Thank goodness we had that DNA identified and hopefully one day soon they will be able to determine what happened to this young boy. It's a tragic case and it's a horrible way to go. Four years old, it's just really tragic. Absolutely, but we're glad that some answers were made. Dina, Terry, thank you as always. And thank you for joining us here on Law & Crime Daily. We'll see you next time as we discuss justice in America. Okay, Missy, I got to go to you on this one. Uh, they gave us a lot of information in that three-and-a-half-minute clip, uh, not the least of which is that they had very limited DNA to work with. Um, but you heard the... Uh, the young lady reporter that was, I think she was on the, the, my left. She said something about, uh, having older samples and, and I believe there were also newer samples that were, that were, uh, supplied to you. Um, was there any, how do I want to say this? This again, like I said, this is an area that's new to me. Um, so how uh, how new, in, in relative <laughs> terms, how new were the new samples and how old were the older samples? And what what ended up turning the case, in your opinion? So I don't know how old the older samples were, but I believe that Dr. Fitzpatrick attended an exhumation. Was it in 2019, Colleen? 
Yeah, and that's where the newer sample came from. That also didn't work, and then she was able to send it to the lab that we sent it to. And I think that was in about 2021. Is that sound about or 2020? Yeah, I want to say that even the new samples came from the old body. So you're still looking at 65 year old. You know, you're not saying, "Oh my God, it's from last year." You know, maybe it is from last year, but it comes from remains that are 65 years old. Now, I do believe, yeah. I'm not sure that those mm-hmm. two samples were used or whether the, the original, he's exhumed twice, once in 1998 and once in ni- 2019. And so same same body, same remains. I believe the yeah. older sample, older samples were, older samples from the older, the samples from the older exhumation were used, but it, I don't think it would make yeah. that much difference. Yeah. Well, that would, that would have been my next question, Misty. Yeah. Uh, does it make a difference? Again, uh, Dr. Fitzpatrick points out something critical here. The body uh, in in question, Joseph Augustus Zarelli, was exhumed on two different occasions. That in and of itself is highly, highly unusual to have a body exhumed twice. Right. For two two different um, uh, collection purposes. What was it, in your opinion... That made the second, because I know that somebody, often it takes a fresh, clean set of eyes, but somebody had to have some sense of, you know, there was something going on here that we could work with. What was it, in your opinion, that you physically worked with that cinched it for you? I think just the advent of technology and how much it changed over even a decade. Um, from 1988 to 2019, I guess that's, gosh, almost two decades, but um, that amount of time of the way they would extract a sample back in 1988 compared to the way that they do it now, that advent in technology would change so much that it could give them a fresh set of, of information, possibly. The parents, Yeah, I'd like, um, like to yeah. add to that. Sure, go ahead, doctor. I'd like to add to that. And, and the, Missy's right, technology had advanced. So there was a first attempt done in late 2018 that failed. It used a technology called microarray. So when that happened, you know, the people working on it didn't quite get the technology. They said, oh, it failed. Let's exhume him to see if we could get better, a better sample. And I think that, um, you know, it was clear that maybe that would or wouldn't work, but it's the same body, right? So that I think that the that it wasn't that we got a better sample. It's just that we got more powerful technology. And that's why, you know, it failed twice. We tried microarray. We tried whole, something called whole genome sequencing. That's like a better way. That didn't work. And then we went yeah. to ancient DNA. That was all in development between that first ex, that first attempt in 2018 and when we, we finally got hold of the, of the tiger in 2021 much really uh, uh, unbelievable development in in the power of what we did. Yeah. You have at your disposal, Misty, uh, an incredible array of technologies. Setting all of that aside, how much does good old-fashioned luck have to do with this case? Well, really, when it comes to luck in these cases, it comes to what are the genetic matches of the sample that we're working on? That's our luck is are they going to be good matches? Are they going to be close cousins or are they going to be farther distant cousins? And in this case, they were not 
great matches. So we had some fairly decent ones on the paternal side of the family, which was Italian ancestry, which was really hard to lock down. And on the mother side of the family, which was the Irish stock, we had some pretty distant matches to work with, but we had those ex-DNA matches that I spoke of before, which mm -hmm. were able to illuminate the ex-DNA inheritance pattern on the tree for me. Yeah. And so really it came down to just luck of, of who's tested and who's in the database and who we can match his remains against. Remarkable. Wow. We're going to take station identification. We will be back in two minutes and two seconds. Right back. Just wanted to start a business when something surprising happens. Today, I'm going to teach you how to crochet. She started crocheting like a lot and her friends noticed. Jess, you need to sell those. So she signed up for Shopify and started building her business. Yes, I love that. And after a lot of hard work, this happened. Oh my gosh, I just made my first sale! You see, every day, hundreds of businesses get their first sale on Shopify. We got ding! And the next could be you. So when you're ready to bring your idea to life and become your own boss, build it on Shopify. What's Buzz Podcast wants to welcome Radioactive FM 88.6 in Wellington, New Zealand, Radio Perth, Australia, and RTL Radio 102.5 in Milan, Italy. Welcome aboard and welcome to the Buzz. And we are back with Dr. Colleen Fitzpatrick and Misty Gillis. She is a forensic genealogist uh, with Identifinders. I love that name, by the I way. I know. That's what we were talking about earlier. Fitzpatrick, where'd you come up with that name? Well, just kicking it around. When I, you know, ID and we find people and finding and genealogy. Oh, I got it. Identifinders. What about that? Okay. <laughs> I love, it. I love it. Perfect. It's a great name. Um, Amelia, the yes. Pitbull Chapman. <laughs> you are up to bat, kid. Uh, this was for uh, Misty as well. Uh, I know that you probably put in quite a few long nights, correct? It's like you're going to stay here, stay here till this test got done. And then did you ever find yourself, I'm going to do one more test or one more test? Well, I found myself staying up a lot doing like, I'm going to build one more tree, one more tree, one more, I, one more match. And I spent a lot of time on the phone with Colleen and was like, you know, this is what I'm seeing in the tree and this is what I'm finding. And I, I remember standing outside of my porch, having a cigarette one day and I was working on a branch of the tree from Alabama and I found out they moved to um, Philadelphia. And when I had that moment, I remember calling Colleen and saying, I found a Philadelphia branch. Oh, wow. <laughs> and saying, go. I think we're on the right track. I think this is where we need to go. And it was one of those like aha moments of just when I work cases, I stay up and, and, and I sleep and I dream about them and I wake up about them. And I just have those aha moments that pop up that I can kind of put on paper in a sense, which yeah. is really put on my computer. But to build out those connections but I, I remember that day when i found that alabama connection to philadelphia of being like that was my aha moment dr fitzpatrick is it possible to overthink a case oh you gotta be kidding me <laughs> what is that <laughs> i'm not sure what that means no 
know. I think it's just well, limited and, and by words, some, I'll, I'll tell you what I mean by that, and it's it, and it's a great it's a great question. Um, no, and I'm I'm not kidding at all. I'm to totally serious. <laughs> Sometimes, I I know in my in, in my realm in what I do. Sometimes I can give too much thought to something that's so simple that it's staring me in the face, but overthinking overthinking something can make can convolute it when it need not be. So, is it possible in your realm to overthink a case? You can hire um, me now. <laughs> <laughs> not, no, not really. Um, not really, because every, even if you turn down a blind alley, it's a blind alley. You know, you know that, or you say, oh, okay, no, he didn't come from New York. Cut that branch off, move on. Um, and in ter terms of the DNA stuff, it took so long that, you know, you don't really have a concentrated moment that you sit and think, oh my God, DNA, yeah. DNA, what do I do now? You know, it's not like your house payments do and you don't know where the money's coming from. You got three hours, you know, it's more like over time, you know, you kind of drift with what you have just realized, heard that somebody else is, has a new way to try it. And you yeah. read on that and you have the, you actually, there was no deadline, you know, in this case, you know, so you're not yeah. under pressure. You put the pressure on yourself. So I would say it's, it's, um, you can overthink in the wrong direction. And if you're not good, a good genealogist, you will not realize it's the wrong direction. So, yes, you're overthinking the wrong way. But when you overthink the right direction, that's a good thing. See, it wasn't a stupid question after all. <laughs> <laughs> um, let's talk a little bit about this. At, at the heart of this case is a lot of technology and advances in science and good police work and good forensic work. But the long and short of it, it comes down to a little boy who was killed at a very, very young age. And the human element must not and cannot be lost on this. Um, I want to warn people that are watching us around the globe at this time. You're going to see some photographs. That may be disturbing. If there are children in the room, you might want to escort them out. Uh, you are going to see crime scene photos. You're going to see um, the the boy in question, Joseph Augustus Zarelli, formerly referred to as the boy in the box or America's unknown child. So uh, with that, let's take a look at this and we will discuss this afterward. We should point out to people that we're looking at an artist's conception uh, based on the physical evidence of what this young boy would have looked like uh, at that time. And he would have been uh, misty. He would have been about four, maybe five. Is that about right? Four. Yeah. Okay. You are now looking at the actual cardboard box that Joseph Augustus Zarelli was found in. You are looking at a real photograph of what he looked like upon his discovery. 
There are his footprints, and you see him there in the right-hand corner, lower right, uh, propped up, and he was propped up for identification purposes. That's not how he was found. We should point that out. That is Joseph Augustus Zarelli, formerly known as the boy in the box. You are looking at Mrs. Zarelli. That's mom. That's what they tell me. They tell me this is mother, and we have father. Father is right here. Uh, Misty, were you shown any of these photographs? I were not. I was not shown those photographs. No. Okay, we have identified them positively from the Philadelphia Police Department as Mr. and Mrs. Zarelli. That's an actual photo of the box containing the young boy when the police arrived. This is a police photograph. He is still in the box at this time. So you are looking at literally the first photo taken of this crime scene. I referred to this earlier. Uh, the police were wearing these very long, almost foot-length um, winter part of their uniform, I guess is what you want to say, um, which indicates to me that it was cold and at least cold and damp because they look like they may be kind of like raincoat-looking things. Um, were, did that make a difference to you, Dr. or Misty, in... In any of this, or did the the geographics or the demographics of this make no difference whatsoever? No difference. Okay. Good answer. That's how he was found inside the box, you guys. Um, by the way, at the end of the show, we're going to issue a challenge to our audience. We're going to ask you to get involved in this case with us. Amelia and I have absolutely agreed, and there's no turning back now. We have absolutely agreed that we must find justice for Joseph Augustus Zarelli. We need to find out who killed him and why. And we will not stop until we get an answer. So, at the end of the show, we're going to enlist your help. Okay. Now, Dr. and Misty, You've seen a lot here. There's a lot to talk about. Um, let's talk about the physical location. Did somebody know what they were doing here? I don't, I don't know. think it, so. I don't think so yeah. either. 
I I will tell you that I agree with you. I think somebody was nervous. Uh, somebody panicked. I think somebody put that box there to be discovered. It was absolutely in plain sight of anybody who was walking down Susquehanna Avenue. And it's not, it's that area, and I know where it's at. That's, you can't miss it. If you're walking down Susquehanna Avenue in 1957 and you see that box, you were meant to see it. Somebody put it there purposely. So I think somebody wanted to be wanted it to be discovered while trying to maintain their anonymity. I also believe, quite frankly, the father put it there, and I believe the mother killed the little boy. That's my take on it. I've told uh, law enforcement in the past that's what I believed happened. I will stick with that story. I believe I can prove it. Um, I am not a forensic genealogist or a scientist or a doctor of any kind, but I have a different kind of um, a different kind of medicine I use. Um, Amelia, you're up. Yes. Questions for the doctor and for Misty. Uh, anyone uh, can ask. Did the family uh, has half brother or sisters ever come forward and say thank you or acknowledge knew that you guys found out who he was? They they don't oh. they never met. We don't think any of them knew about his existence. Yeah. Wow. So really, no. To my knowledge, I don't think they knew anything. This I will tell you. Um, I can tell you right now, uh, I don't know how much you're, you're aware of it, but there are two living siblings. There's a brother and a sister. They've both been identified, and they have both given press interviews. Uh, that's, yeah. all can, that's all I can uh, tell you right well, now. It, I want to say you don't have to tell us that anything because we know all the brothers, sisters, aunts, uncles, grandparents, all the way back to God himself. Mm -hmm. Let's put well, I got to tell you anyway, Doc. <laughs> um, that's my job. I'm, I, no, I got to report it. I got to no, report it. <clears throat> you know, to our knowledge and to the, mm -hmm. you know, as we work to the capacity, we work with the Philadelphia mm -hmm. Police Department and they disclosed to us what they had found. To our knowledge, right. those brothers and sisters did not know about his, about their, this boy here, Joseph. Well, oh, so he was hit pretty much hidden, for sure. Wow. Two of them do for sure. Amelia, you're up, kid. Yes, and uh, as far as like these other cases, has, been, has there been another case that was so hard for you guys to work with as far as emotionally? All of them um, are hard emotionally. All of them, um, yeah. Yeah, we get anything from unidentified remains that are infants to sexual mm -hmm. assaults that are serial sexual oh. assaults. That oh, my. They all hurt. Um, the infant cases bother me, especially. I have three young children myself. Um, yes. My youngest daughter was the same age as Joseph when I was working on his case. And that was really hard for me to look at her and see her development and her interaction with me and how much she needs me and wants me. And to think that somebody could do that to a similar age child, you know, mm -hmm. was very difficult for me. Um the sexual assault cases are hard just as a woman of knowing that somebody went through that and somebody endured that pain and, you know, carries that with them for the rest of their life. They're all very difficult. Dr. Fitzpatrick, question for you. Um, something Misty just said uh, prompted uh, an interesting question, and I think you might be the person to answer this. It does emotion play a part in any of these um, cases. 
Uh, is it a, a necessary evil? Or can you do a case like this unemotionally? Or does the emotional aspect of it uh, in some way help you? Well, I want to say exactly the opposite because what I do, you know, uh, let's say this. In the first case I ever did was a Sarah Yarbrough case in 2011. All right. I'm familiar. Over time, we, we solved it in 2019. Now, over time, of course, it sunk in what that was. And I met the parents uh, maybe 2020, 21, and it sunk in a little more. And then I became aware of her grandfather being involved, who was in his 90s. And then, uh, you know, during the trial, it became even more real. And during uh, the sentencing, it, in, the, in the verdict, and then the sentencing, it became extremely real. Because in that case, I was there for the witness impact statements that on TV are not even close to really conveying that pain that these yeah. people have been through. To hear that the neighbors saw the light on across the street in Sarah's room at night, in the middle of the night, <clears throat> the neighbor could see the mother sitting there crying on Sarah's bed in the middle of the night. You know, it, um, those things really affect you. Now, in the long run, the kind of other kind of case, uh, you know, I don't get as close to the family. They don't know me. I don't know them. You know, I know Phoenix Canal murders with that guy being sentenced to death. You know, that I'd say between what I did and him, there's a lot of other stuff. I don't feel responsible for that, but it makes you stop and think. Now, otherwise, you know, I try not to, I, I don't have a lot of emotion because to me it's abstract, you know, more or less. I, I try and keep it that way because I don't have the bandwidth to get emotionally involved in all the cases that we work on. One or two, yeah, you know, it works. Now, as far as the boy went, my emotional attachment was to the detectives that worked on it with us and the VDOC Society people because when I was at the uh, exhumation in 2019, Many of them told me that they had been uh, they had been the same age as the boy, and they went with their moms to the grocery store to put up the flyers in the grocery store mm -hmm. for people to try and come forward to identify him. And so, my connection is through them. It's not through the boy that I never met. I don't know the family and stuff like that. You have various levels. I try and distance myself because it's too much. It's too much for me. The early ones I keep always close to me, in my heart. Always. It seems rather cold uh, to say it like that. I understand where you're coming from. But on the other hand, Misty, isn't there some sort of obligation to justice? There's an obligation to justice, but it's hard for us to put that on our shoulders alone. So as genealogists, we submit the lead and we wait for the police department to secure that lead. And you have to learn how to compartmentalize yourself, because if you don't, you mm -hmm. won't be able to function. No, I was going to say, you yeah. don't go out of your freaking mind. Yeah, yes. you have yes. to. Yeah. I would like to say you'll, you'll become a heavy drinker or you'll blow your brains out. <laughs> Right. Yeah, you really will. Yeah. No, no, I understand like to say, that. Go ahead, doctor, please. Well, I'd like to say that the emotion, sometimes the emotion is when you call the police department and you tell them you have the answer. You know, yes. you're, you're standing there with a piece of information, you know, in the next 30 seconds is going to change the world. 
And it's yeah. going to mean absolutely everything to the person that you are going to say it to. You're going to pick yeah. up the phone and say, yeah. I know who killed this person. I know who this John and Jane Doe is. Yeah. And we have abstractly moved the family around, cousins in the big Sudoku puzzle, and we can understand the backstory. But it's when that moment, that detective that has been working his whole life to solve this case, and you give that answer to him, and it, it's that moment that they're crossing yeah. the line when you open your mouth and a torpedo hits the boat. That, that's when the you, moment that. Yeah, I was just going to say to you when when you knew, when you had that "I know that I know" moment. How long? How long did you wait before you dialed the phone? To speak to Philadelphia police and say, "Hey, um, this thing is done now. We got it." Well, it was almost immediately um, because they they helped us with it. Like we we had the mother's name and we went to the police department and said, "Listen, we know this is the mom. Th these are possible people that were the mom, but we think it's this person." And they said, "What can we do to right. help you?" And we said, "You need to request all birth certificates issued to this person in Philadelphia." Yep. And they. I remember I was standing in my kitchen and I had just let my dog out and Bob Hester called me on the phone with Dr. Fitzpatrick on the line and said, we have a birth certificate sitting here from 1953 and his name is Joseph Augustus Zarelli. And we can find no proof of life of this person past that time. And what do you like? Here's what it lists his father's name as. And I looked at the genealogy and said that fits perfectly with the genealogy. And Dr. Fitzpatrick reviewed my work and said, yes, this, this fits yeah. in perfectly with the genealogy. And we were able to say that his name is Joseph Augustus Sorelli. And I remember it was one of those monumental moments where it was kind of like everybody took a deep sigh and was kind of like, wow, we yeah. have his name. Yeah, we it were on the phone with... Um, remarkable. It's absolutely we on the phone remarkable. With Oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead, doctor, please. Oh, no, I said we we're on the phone. After that, we had a call. Detective Bob Hesser and the lab guy, Ryan Gallagher, that went over, you know, really kind of all came. It was like a little mini summit meeting there. And I remember I wanted to write down the exact time date when we all said it's done. We've got it. And it took a deep breath. And it was like, OK, now we can close our eyes and take a nap. Yeah, and in that moment, it's not even that you have to know in your heart, it's you know because you're looking at it on a piece of paper, right? Right, I'm looking at the fruits of my labor, and I'm able to say that this fits because of XYZ, and this fits mm -hmm. because of XYZ. And it's the only such an interesting field, it really, really is such an interesting field of study. Uh, I, I will be quite candid with that. I've never heard of forensic genealogy. I didn't even know it was a thing. But I assure you, I will have you both back very, very soon, in fact, because we are doing an episode. In fact, it's a two-nighter we're doing on the Shroud of Turin. And I want to know if that is, in fact, Jesus Christ. Or somebody that made a really, really good forgery, which I'm not leaning in that direction. But, <laughs> but we will find that. Well, I they, love you guys. There has been, they have been discussion on doing the DNA on that. And um, I don't know where it went. I think that'd be difficult, but I tell you, I'm up for it. Why not? 
Beautiful. How about you, Mister? You, you game for this one? I'm always game. There you go. I like you. You all. You come back in. I'm like, I'm like Doctor Fitzpatrick too, because she's a Spitzfire. I like. Yes. I like that. All right. Let oh, me tell you. everybody who's coming. Amelia, I'm going to take your duties tonight. Oh my I'm goodness. We have Thursday night this week. We have a very special two-hour broadcast with actor, writer, producer, and director, star of stage, television, and film, Ronnie Marmo, whose new feature, I'm sorry, whose new play is, I'm not a comedian, I'm Lenny Bruce. He is absolutely racking up rave reviews across the country with this amazing one-man show on the life and times of the most controversial comedian that ever lived, Mr. Lenny Bruce. And he'll be with us. Ronnie's got a heck of a resume. Uh, By the way, this play was directed by another Emmy Award-winning actor named Joe Montagna. And you know Criminal Minds, that Joe Montagna. So mm-hmm. don't get too excited, Amelia. You're not going to meet them. No, but I was going to say that we normally are on Monday and Tuesday nights, but we're having our show Thursday night because we were off yesterday. Yeah, and my birthday yesterday, so I took <laughs> off. Yeah. I, we, we showed a rerun. Yeah. <laughs> but we also have on uh, June. I'm sorry, July, I'm still in June. My head's still in June. <laughs> At July 17th, eastbound and down, the ultimate tribute to Smokey and the Bandit. And on July 18th, a very convincing Paul McCartney lookalike will be with us, and he will talk about life as a Beatle. Join us also on July 24th and 25th as we will discuss whether Jesus, in fact, is the imprint on the infamous or famous Shroud of Turin. But until that time... For Dr. Colleen Fitzpatrick, for Misty, I'm going to call you Dr. Misty, (laughs) for Misty Gillis, and the Pitbull, Amelia the Pitbull Chapman, I am the Mad Dog. Join us every Monday and Tuesday for What's the Buzz, America's Best Podcast. Take care, folks. We'll see you next time.